You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, City Church. Uh, my name is Zach, and I'm the groups director here. Uh, we're very glad that you're here with us this morning on this very cold uh, time change spring break morning. So uh, we're going to dive into God's Word together, and we're going to be continuing uh, in our series where we've been looking excuse me, at the seven letters to seven different churches uh, written by John through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, to seven churches in Revelation. And today we're going to be in Revelation 2, if you want to flip with me there. Revelation 2, starting uh, in verse 12 through 17, we're going to be focusing on the letter uh, to the church in a city called Pergamum. So uh, before we dive in and read that, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump right in. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to jump into your word. We pray that uh, it would be fruitful, God. I pray that uh, you would speak through me and that uh, you would use your word to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us, God, and that we would leave uh, this morning different people uh, ready to go on mission for you in Tallahassee. In your name I pray, amen. So what's really interesting to me about this entire series is that we're looking at seven like real letters, right, written to seven, like, real churches filled with real Christians, like, real congregations, and it just got my mind turned into, what if a guy rode into town in Tallahassee, and he was like, hey, I got seven letters from Jesus to seven churches in Tallahassee, uh, letters that, you know, Jesus talks about the health of the church and his thoughts on the church, and City Church, you're one of them, and I'm going to be reading it next week. Well, it would be packed in here, right? It'd be standing room only, and we'd be sitting here, and it'd be a nervous tension in the air. And he goes, all right, well, you guys are number three or whatever, so I'm going to read other two, and then we'll read yours and continue reading. And so while the first two are being read, you know, and he's talking about, Jesus is talking about these churches. We're sitting here nodding in, like, judgmental approval. Like, I could have told you that, Jesus. Uh, obviously, I'm kidding. Uh, but then it gets to number three, right? And then it's us, and, and you could hear a pin drop, and the guy starts the letter from Jesus, and he says, hey, I know where you live. Right? In a capital city full of idolatrous worship. But I know that although you've been persecuted, you have kept my name. And we're sitting here feeling good about ourselves. Right? We're, yeah, of course, let's go. And then he says, but, that's the magic word there, right? But I have this against you. And it's kind of downhill from there. And that was the letter to the church that we see in Pergamum. So we're going to read this letter together, right? This real letter that was written to this real church filled with real people in Pergamum. It's going to be in chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 12. It'll be on the screen. It says, I write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He says, so repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And then he concludes here, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, 
I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so right off the bat, right here in verse 12, we see the seriousness and this authoritative tone of the letter, right? It says, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. This letter, right, the following words are from one who has all authority, right? They're from one who holds the sword of judgment. They're from Jesus. So we can conclude that this letter is not from the human mouth, right, or an overly emotional opinion of someone who's mad. It's like, well, let me tell you about this church and let me tell you about that church. No. It's from the mouth of Christ. And the sword is the word of God. And because it's the word of God, we know that we can trust it. And it's true. It's infallible. Hebrews 4.12 speaks of this exact same sword when it says, For the word of God is living and it's effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We know as believers that the word of God, it's living, it's effective, it's penetrating. So verse 12 here, when we jump in, is basically saying, hey, members of the church of Pergamum, or all those who are reading this letter, us, he says, take heed, listen to what is about to be said. Because of both who it's from, number one, and number two, the eternal consequences that come with its significance. And so as we continue in verse 13, we come across a really cool promise. It says, verse 13, he goes, I know where you live. I know where you live. And this had to have been such a comforting word to hear because it's more than just like a physical location, right? And we'll get into the context and the culture surrounding this particular church in a second. But to hear from the one like verse 12 says, who holds the sharp double-edged sword, like Dean said last week, the one who has unlimited authority, complete sovereignty, sovereignty meaning like supreme power, no one above him, he knows where his people live. It's a great promise. He knows our situations. He knows our problems. Maybe he knows in this context the persecution that we face for being a Christian. Maybe friends uh, that we lose due to holding fast to our Christian convictions of what we know to be true in Scripture. Maybe a promotion we didn't give it because of our moral and ethical convictions. He knows our health scares, the unjust situations we go through. Right? Christ knows what we're facing. He's aware of our circumstances and this very intimate detail. And this can make all the difference, this truth. This promise can make all the difference in my life, in your life just as it made all the difference in theirs. So basically saying when we find ourselves in situations where maybe confessing the name of Jesus could have harmful consequences, we can rest our souls in these words from our Lord Jesus, I know where you live. And this tough situation, it it was happening in the church at Pergamum. And so the Lord right here, not by accident, graciously reminds and comforts them. He says, I know where you live. I know where you live. And then we get a pretty real sense of their situation. It's kind of wild. When we continue to read, he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's throne is. That sounds kind of odd and very serious. 
and we look to the culture of Pergamum, we get a really good sense of why Jesus says, hey, I know where, you're, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And I got chills when I read this the first time, is that Pergamum, it was a capital city. It was the official capital city of the Roman Empire. It was this massive, massive center for learning and for worship. History fact, I love me a good history fact. It had the second largest library in the world, right behind Alexandria. And it's referred to as the most distinguished city in Asia at the time. And it paints this picture of the center of pagan worship, where people come in pilgrimage to worship at these temples dedicated to multiple gods. And actually, the, um, one of the ancient wonders of the world was there, the temple to Zeus. And what's interesting enough, enough is it <clears throat> sat at the outside of the city, on top of a mountain, and it was this massive statue, and it literally, literally cast a shadow over this great city as a constant reminder to its citizens that, hey, pagan religion reigns supreme here. And because it was a capital city, they were obsessed with the love of state. Okay, so patriotism, nationalism had crossed into idolatry, and those who failed to join were persecuted. So basically for the Christians here uh, in the, the literature program of the church and program, basically to them it was, hey, I don't care if you're a Christian. You're kind of a fringe group. You follow this guy named Jesus. You're small. You're not affecting much. You're fine. But when your Christian convictions get in the way of your public duty to the government, well, you're going to be in big trouble because government... And patriotism and nationalism here in Pergamum, they come first. And so you can imagine this daily struggle of these brothers and sisters in Christ trying to live a Christian life devoted to Jesus in the midst of such opposition and societal pressures. I think it's, it's kind of sad because I don't think it's very hard to imagine that because of a lot of those themes and tones we see very clearly today. And so let's continue in verse 13, it says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. It says, yet, this is good news right here, you're holding on to my name. And you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. And so Christ tells us three things about this church right here. Number one is the pagan world in which they live, which we just talked about. Number two their faithful witness, and number three, their endurance under persecution. He commends them. He says, hey, you held my name. You didn't deny me. Even though you were faced with all this outside pressure, you held fast. So we know that this congregation had this deep-seated courage for their convictions, and it sustained them in times of pressure. And Jesus goes on, and he actually does a reference <clears throat> one incident of a man, right, in this little congregation who had been killed for his faith. His Antipas calls him his faithful witness, had lost his life for Jesus. Was he the pastor? We, we, we don't really know. He could have been an elder. Or he could have actually been just an ordinary, faithful member of the church. So while we don't know exactly who he was, we do know something much more important is that he was not willing to conform to the lifestyle of his city. 
in which religion and politics and nationalism were rolled into one. Historical scholars think that he was actually boiled in a copper pot that was uh, cast to be in the image of a boar. It's kind of like a, a spit in the face to his Christian religion dying at the hands of an idol. But we see Jesus call Antipas faithful. Is there any better adjective than we can be called by Jesus in faithful? He calls him faithful. Faithful to him, faithful to his teachings, to living those out. How do we do that? How do we faithful? We know that Jesus is faithful to us first, right? That he pulls us out of our sin and our shame. So Jesus begins this letter with the word of encouragement, but then he unveils the first layer and exposes some spiritual compromise that was going on in this church. So while many were faithful, right, even to death, shout out to our boy Antipas, this wasn't true of everyone in the church. And Jesus tells us in verse 14 what plagued the church here in Antipas. Let's read together in verse 14. It says, so he says, you you've, uh, haven't denied your faith in me, you've been a faithful witness, but I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so some in Pergamum held true in the name of Jesus, to the name of Jesus, but then some held to the teachings of Balaam. And this is used symbolically here, and it's really cool. We actually see the story. It's not cool, it's interesting. We see the story of Balaam in the Old Testament book of Numbers. We can read it for ourselves in Numbers 23 to 25. And it's a story where pagan traditions of sacrificing food to idols and the pagan practice of sexual immorality creeps its way into the Israelite camp and affects its practices. And this leads to a spiritual compromise and adultery in the part of God's people, right? They let the outside world creep in and affect them. And this stumbling block referenced here in 14, it refers to the immorality and the idolatry that the church in Pergamum celebrated, right? The idols of the culture had crept its way in. They adopted their culture, sexual ethics. And we also see here that some held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we actually, interestingly enough, we see the first church we looked at in this series, the church to Ephesus, we see that they knew about these guys as well. And we don't know exactly what the teachings were, but we do know, and we can conclude that idolatry, right, and sexual immorality were distinctive characteristics of these false teachers. So the church in Pergamum attempted to serve God, right? but in the process, they allowed the cultural norms and the pressures creep in internally and shape both their thinking, right, their theology, and their lifestyles, how they live that out. Satan, he attacked this church from the inside out. It was compromise. They compromised. And compromise, which we see here in this letter, is one of Satan's favorite and most effective weapons against the church. 
So we must be vigilant to protect it, <clears throat> both in the context of the church as a whole, but individually as well. We must be vigilant. And I think it's important as we look at this church in Pergamum that we can evaluate our own life as well. As a Christian, do you, do I, my gosh, that's a daily question, do I compromise my faith because of cultural pressures? Or like we talked about before, maybe fear of losing a friendship. Or fear of not uh, advancing in your career. One person didn't that we just read about. Our boy, Antipas, right? He valued the glory of Christ over pressures from the outside world, even to the point of death. And the president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Dan, uh, Daniel Aiken, wrote on the characteristics of compromise and why Satan loves to use it as a strategy to derail his church. He points out four different characteristics of compromise. They'll be on the screen. <clears throat> but the first one is that it never occurs quickly. Compromise never occurs quickly, so you hardly notice the change. It's like when you plant a tree, right, by a sidewalk. And when you first plant it, it provides shade, it's pretty, it's fun to run by. But as it, as it grows, right, the, the roots start to grow underneath the sidewalk. And then one day you notice there's a small crack. Like, oh, well, I can still run over it, right? I can still run my bike over it. It's not that big a deal. It's still operable. But then as the roots grow and this displaced soil this, those small cracks turn into large cracks, and they turn into bumps. Then all of a sudden you look at the sidewalk and you say, I can't run over that. I'll roll my ankle. I can't ride my bike over that. I'll flip over the handlebars. So I can't, that's not operable. What happened to that sidewalk? It looked great the other day. And this change that Dr. Aiken is talking about here doesn't happen overnight. It's not easily observable, but it has catastrophic long-term effects. The second characteristic is that it always lowers the original standards to which you once held important. The third one is that it's seldom offensive. Compromise is seldom seen as offensive because it's perceived as loving. And then the fourth is it eventually leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. <clears throat> It's not on the screen, but he goes on to write about this, and he says, and I've heard this in other contexts as well, but it says, it's been well said that one generation tolerates, right? The next generation will accept. And then what that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. And this problem of compromise that we've seen here in Pergamum, it wasn't specific just here to the church in Pergamum. To be honest, we see it in our American Christian church today a lot of times, unfortunately. We see it in Romans. Paul writes about this very thing in Romans 12 too. He says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why is that important? So that you may discern what is good, what is pleasing, what is the perfect will of God <clears throat> from all the other junk that the world tries to put in that place. We also see it in James. In his letter, James 4.4, he comes out swinging right here. He says, you adulterous people, meaning the idolatry towards God. He says, don't you know that 
friendship with the world is hostility towards God. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And this is, some may see this as radical language, but basically what they're saying is, hey, it's impossible, it's impossible to serve God, to be a disciple of Jesus, while also looking exactly like the world around us. And so as we seek as a church, as individual Christians, as we seek to be faithful to the scriptures and the teachings of God, we'll slip because we're sinful and we're human. We'll, sweat, we'll slip, we'll sway, we'll conform, we'll concede to the pressures just like the church in Pergamum did. But what does Jesus call us to do when that happens? What did Jesus call the church to do when that happens? Look at verse 16. Right here it says, so repent. Repent. This is great news. Saying, turn from that. You've slipped. Turn from that and run to me because it's not too late. I think that's something I need to be reminded of daily. It's not too late. It's never too late to repent. He says, repent. And he says, otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's saying here, hey, I am against this. I am against this compromise. I am against these people that are compromising. And I will come soon and I will make war against them with the word of my mouth. And I think it's very important right here to understand the relationship between the church and the Lord of the church. Because the Lord of the church, he can be against some things that are going on in the church and against some that are in the church. And he makes war with them. And sometimes he does. I mean, we can look at the history of the church and see time and time and time again stories of individuals who have crept in and deviously compromised the mission of the church, who have compromised the gospel, that compromised the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we really see that Jesus indeed is against that because he's going to protect his church and won't stand for its compromise. And I think that there's, I think that there's an underlying element of this in the church now, and it's tragic. And this looks like a complete indifference to the glory of Jesus, and sometimes that manifests in members or attenders. I'm talking like, like nationwide, right? Members or attenders just going through the motions that there are very few things in our lives that point to the love and the joy and the zeal that we find in Jesus. And that has this trickle-down effect on the next generation, <clears throat> excuse me, and the generation after that. Just this indifference to the church. This religion that was just kind of inherited but was never personally known. And that religion... And that faith, it dissolves at the very first sight of tension with the world. It's a faith that compromises, that conforms the culture. And that, right there, is the faith, and it was the problem, pointed out by Jesus in the church of Pergamum. It was this internal, another history reference, internal Trojan horse, right, 
that had crept its way into the church in Pergamum and sowed these seeds of destruction from the very foundation of the theology and the convictions of that church. Pastor Kevin DeYoung describes the church in Pergamum like this. It's this great little three-sentence encapsulation of this. He says, Pergamum was your ungrounded, so ungrounded, youth-infused church. I want to say it's not a bad thing to be a youth-infused church. City Church was once a youth-infused church. But the problem was them being ungrounded in Scripture, in their faith. Ungrounded, youth-infused church. He says they were faithful, a passionate witness, but they had compromised with the world and accommodated to their sexually immoral and idolatrous culture. He says they were missional. They were just misguided. And to them... And to us, Jesus says, discern. Saying, be careful that the church's convictions, that our individual convictions in our faith, don't bend the knee to political and to social pressures that the world pushes upon the church. Because just like the church here in Pergamum, our culture, it celebrates it worships, it expects affirmation of things that God is against. And I think if we take out our, excuse me, our telescope, right, and look to the future, I can expect that the church will continue to feel more and more pressure, this weight on the shoulders of the church to compromise, to twist scripture, to apologize for things in the Bible, to give caveats. I'm not like those guys. I'm not crazy like those guys who hold true to the word of God. No. I I saw another commentator um, uh, write on this passage. He says, today's non-confrontive church is largely repeating the error of the Pergamum church, just on a grander scale, and will face the judgment of the Lord of the church. So how can we stand and faithfulness as a church to God, to his word, to our Lord Jesus, where we can rest in the promise of scripture that we find right here in verse 17, spoken by Jesus to his faithful. Look with me in verse 17 as we conclude. He said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, or to my faithful, to my faithful. I lost my spot. Okay, I will will give some of the hidden manna. Give some of the hidden manna. All throughout Scripture, we see God use bread as a symbol to sustain his people, right? In the Old Testament, We see God rain down manna to the Israelites when they were in the desert to give them life, to give them physical nourishment. Then we can go to the New Testament and see in the Gospel of John, in John 6, Jesus refer to himself as the bread of life, right? The bread of life, giving eternal life to those who follow him. So I'll give some of the hidden manna, I will give life. And then in verse 17, it says, I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, 
that is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this, guys, is so encouraging because it points to the eternal security that we find in Christ, right? This new identity that Jesus gives us when we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters of God. And we know in this new state, in this new life, he will hold us fast through anything that we may encounter in this life because he's faithful to fulfill his promises. And that includes right here eternal security in our salvation that's only made possible, only made possible through Jesus' death on the cross, conquering death in the grave. The security is not something that we can earn or we can uh, do things to, to build that security. It's found in the work of Jesus before God in our place. This gift in verse 17 is a gift from God himself that can never be taken away. So why don't we compromise? Why can't we compromise? Through the pressures and the persistent voices of the world on how we should live or what we should do, but hold fast to the promises and teachings found in Scripture? Well, number one, we go back to what we just what we started this uh, this morning talking about. The truth of Scripture. We know that Scripture is true. That God's word's infallible. Psalm calls it a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. It doesn't get edited or revised. It's the perfect word of God. It's a rock in which we can build our lives on and cling to at all times, no matter the winds or the waves. Jesus uh, talks about this in his parable. We know, the second reason is we know without a shadow of a doubt that the reward that Jesus promises here in verse 17 to his faithful is worth infinitely, infinitely more than anything this world throws at us tries to get us to cling to. Eternal life with him, worshiping with the body of Christ in heaven for eternity. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, look at Jesus' command in in verse 16 and repent Acknowledge that I can't do it by myself. I need a Savior. And then follow him. Become his disciple. And then we can all rest in verse 17. Rest in the promises of his word and it's worth it. It's worth more than anything. So we're to hold fast. Cling to Jesus. Cling to scripture. Cling to our convictions and our faith. And we can rest in and trust Jesus' promise in verse 17 that he will hold us fast. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word to us today. God, I pray that as we go out uh, into the harvest, that we would remain faithful to you. God, that we would remain faithful to your word. Lord, thank you for the promises in Scripture. I pray that we would be very quick to rest in those promises during times of difficulties. Lord, please keep us. Lord, please 
sustain us as we seek to live out your mission here in Tallahassee for your glory. Amen.